I'm very happy to see you here this afternoon. I've read the paper today, something I hardly ever or never do, because the news is a bit frightening. And at the same time, I also read a little pamphlet which was sent out by the World Peace Association for their week of prayer. And um, it has a very nice prayer of five lines at the end of this little pamphlet. And it's a Hindu prayer. And it applies, in my view, to everyone. So I'll read you that. Lead me from the unreal, the untruth to truth. Lead me from the darkness to light, from ignorance to knowledge, from death to immortality. Let peace prevail everywhere. Let peace fill our heart, our world, our universe. Nice wish. How do we make it come true? How we make it come true is exactly what the Buddha teaches. But not out there somewhere, but each one in our own hearts, as best as we can. And in the four afternoons that we are going to be together here, if you have the intention of being here all four afternoons, we're going to see here and try out and hopefully experience what it means to get a little nearer to peace in one's heart. The mess that this world is in at this particular point in time is the same mess it's always been in. At this moment, it seems to have come a little nearer physically, emotionally, but it's the same mess. There were wars in the Buddhist time. There was enormous political unrest in Jesus' time. In this century, I read somewhere, we've had 81 wars so far, maybe 82 as of tomorrow. It's not doing badly for 90 years in one century. No way we're going to fix the world, but we can fix ourselves. And each single person that has fixed him or herself has made the greatest contribution to world peace because we are the world. And each one of us who has gained access to the purified mind, the essence that we all have within us, which is totally peaceful, totally harmonious, has given the world that much more peace. Whether we go and shout it from the rooftops or not, Maybe we are called to do so. Some of us have that knack, that ability, but it doesn't produce peace. 
it only reminds others to be peaceful. Now, if we do follow some of the instructions that the Buddha gave, we may be able to find peace ourselves. Totally independent of outer conditions. Now, mind you, that is the ideal. Until we get to that point where we are totally independent of outer conditions, it will be a slow movement of being less and less dependent on them. But we can see that it's possible. The Buddha's teaching is a guideline, instructions, that's all, how to do it. It's a how-to book consisting of many volumes and over and over it says the same thing, that the guideline is there, but each one of us has to do it. There's nobody that will do it for us, neither Buddha nor any teacher nor the best friend, nor mother and father, or whoever we have in mind, doesn't matter, we've got to do it ourselves. And the moment we're willing to do that, and having come here, it is presumed that you are interested and willing to do that yourself. The moment we start recognizing that we have to do it ourselves, that's the moment we enter the spiritual path. That is almost as if we are coming out of the forest and we are seeing a pathway ahead or out of a jungle. The moment we say, I have to do it, it's entirely up to me. That's the moment we start. And the spiritual path is a lifetime job. Doesn't get paid very well, mind you. But it pays other dividends, totally different ones. And since we have all lived in a fairly affluent society, we do know that the material wealth is not satisfying. Naturally, one needs something, but one needs more. It isn't all that life contains. In fact, it's only a small beginning to have enough in one's livelihood to live off, and maybe a little bit left over to give away to others. The spiritual path is not something that we can delegate to a Buddhist summer school or to a meditation retreat or when the group meets every Saturday or whatever may happen. A spiritual path is an attitude, an attitude in one's heart and mind which has as its purpose inner purification. 
And this inner purification is something for which the Buddha gives the guidelines, which the Buddha explains how we can do it, and I will explain as much of it as I can during these short days that we are together. One of the aspects without which we cannot hope to have a really strong purification is meditation. Now meditation is not the goal, it's a means. And this is an important aspect to remember. Never think that to be a good meditator, in parenthesis, is our goal. It's nothing but the means. But it's a very important means. In fact, it's one which is so important that we can't do without. It changes our, our mind. And that's what we need to do. Meditation has the inbuilt purification. One moment of concentration is one moment of purification. If we're actually able to stay on the meditation subject for one moment, we are unable to have negative thoughts. So we have this automatic and effortless mind change which happens because of meditation. Now most people want to sit down to meditate because either they've heard it's something nice or they've tried everything else already, or they want to have some peace of mind, or they want to try out what all these Eastern religions are about. It doesn't matter what reason one has. The main thing is to come and meditate. But its main purpose is purification. And that's it's also its main result. And the purified mind has a totally different outlook on the world. It goes away to a large extent from the ego-based reaction to a reaction which takes in the whole, a totality of existence. Now, if you just think for a moment, if that would be the reaction of the people who are engaged in making this war happen, if they, each one of them would be thinking of the well-being of the whole of existence, nobody would be even mentioning the word war. Now, we've all had our personal wars, haven't we? Each one has had them. Could have been verbally, sometimes physically, and sometimes just emotionally. We are not quite powerful enough to start a global one, but the personal ones are unpleasant enough, aren't they? That's where we can make the changes. Not because we're going to change other people, 
We're going to change our reaction. The purified mind has a different reaction. It's no longer so much concerned with its own wants and dislikes, but it can automatically, without even trying, see the whole of the well-being of whatever there is around oneself or even in the whole of existence. Our ordinary day-to-day -day consciousness is the consciousness of duality. We are constantly confronted with what we like and what we don't like, with what we'd like to have and like to get rid of, what's mine and what's yours, what was yesterday and tomorrow, what's good and what's bad, what we might think is to our benefit and what might not be. So we are constantly engaged in a marketplace reality where we weigh up, just like a person that sells goods, weighs them so that we don't charge too much or too little. It can't be peaceful. It's impossible. Because there's always the worry whether it's going to work out to one's own benefit or not. It's a necessary type of consciousness with which we have to live when we attend to business, but only then. The rest of the time, we don't have to have that kind of consciousness. And when we meditate, we slowly get nearer to a different level of consciousness because the mind learns to be quiet. It has to eventually learn that, otherwise one can't meditate. The mind that keeps on talking is concerned with this everyday marketplace consciousness, cannot meditate. It's the same mind, but the ability to go one step further away from this everyday reality to a mind which becomes quiet and does not think but experiences instead. That kind of mind has an inkling what it means to be peaceful. Not thinking does not mean that the mind becomes a blank. This is a very important misconception which is very often bandied about in the West where meditation is a fairly new um, undertaking. A blank mind is a mind that knows nothing. Well, we haven't come to meditate to know nothing. We'd like to know better, but not nothing. A non-thinking mind is a mind that experiences. It experiences its own inner life. And that's what we live with constantly. We think we live with this outer world because it's intruding upon us. We're reacting to it. But that reaction is our own inner life. So there's no other place where life takes place for each one of us except 
within, inside of us, dependent upon our own reactions. That's all. Once we've got that quite clear, we can start to practice. As long as we still think that it's due to what other people say, do, think, or not do, so long we haven't got a chance to practice yet because we are still either hoping to change others or trying to get away from them or trying to get near them depending on what they are rea uh, our reaction to them is but the minute we see that we live according to our own inner life and that it may not be totally peaceful and harmonious totally happy at ease then we're willing to make that change so in meditation our practical aspects for meditation are trying to become concentrated enough on one meditation subject so that the mind stops telling stories. Sounds simple enough. Any one of you who has tried it before knows it doesn't work. And why doesn't it work? because the mind has been used to thinking for so many years, so many lifetimes, it can't get out of the habit. It's got the habit of thinking. And so it keeps on thinking. And in meditation particularly, it thinks about so many unnecessary, nonsensical aspects that if one is truthful, and attentive to it, one wonders what happened to one's mind, which until now one may have thought was very rational, very logical, and could ascertain what was going on very well. In meditation, it's neither rational nor logical, it just thinks. Why? Because it's always been thinking. No other reason. So what we need to do in order to get to these pathways which I have so briefly outlined where the mind starts experiencing instead of thinking where peacefulness becomes at least an inkling in the mind what we have to do is we have to use these disturbing and distracting thoughts for a good purpose it's no use getting angry at them negating them saying, oh, it's only today because it's so hot, tomorrow will be better, or um, uh, it's only because I've had this problem, that's why I'm thinking so much. There's no sense in that. To accept them and label them. Give them a name. Now, that name should be something like, this is the future. This is the past. This is worry, planning, hoping, remembering, anger, boredom, nonsense. If one is truthful enough to say nonsense to oneself, it's a big help. And if one is truthful enough to do that, one will find that a lot of it is pure fantasy. Some of it may just be little bits of thought. 
some of it may be very quickly disappearing again. Not to try and find the exact label that fits, but the first label that comes to mind is sufficient. Now that labeling has great benefits, first of all. We learn from it that the minute we become the observer and are no longer the thinker, the thought disappears. We also learn from it that we can at will, by being the observer, change from the thought back to the meditation subject. We learn substitution. Now, this is one of the most effective ways in daily life to have peace and harmony within. The minute we learn to label in daily life that a thought was negative, harmful, and thereby are able to substitute it with one which is positive and beneficial, we have changed our life about 90%. Now this is the first step we learn in meditation. Here we label every thought. Never mind whether it's negative or positive. Every single thought that comes up is detrimental to concentration. So whatever it may be, may it be the most illustrious thought about may there be peace in the world, it's still a distracting thought and we can label it. We, to this particular one, if it should come up, we could say later and back to the meditation subject. So we learn and get to know our mind pattern. Everybody has a certain habit and pattern of thinking. And we get to know that through the labeling. We get to know that the observer is no longer the thinker and the thought falls apart and we learn to substitute. Now this substitution process is one of the most important purification aspects of the whole of the teaching. In Pali it's called Padana, in English, the four supreme efforts. And there are four of the 37 sectors of enlightenment. So if you sit, sit there and you've got all sorts of thoughts and you're beginning to think, oh, I can't meditate, I'm just thinking. Remember that the minute you substitute with attention on the meditation subject, you're using one of the four factors of enlightenment out of a whole of 37. Substituting that which is unwholesome with the wholesome. Simple, isn't it? Not easy, unfortunately. But worth trying. The four supreme efforts, I'm... I'm name them for you so that you know what they're like because if you remember nothing else from these days that we're here together except those four you're doing well you couldn't do anything more important than remembering them and then use them not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen 
not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen. To make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen, to make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen. In other words, substituting all unwholesome thoughts which ho with wholesome ones. The substitution action in daily life to do this, to do those supreme efforts, is exactly the same action that we use in the meditation when we want to substitute any disturbing, distracting thought with the meditation subject. So every time you do it, you can be very happy that you're doing something very important. Another thing which you need to remember, which is helpful to remember, is the fact that the mere sitting down with the intention to meditate makes extremely good karma. Karma, O monks, I declare, is intention. Karma, literally translated, means action. But the Buddha changed that because karma was already part of the spiritual inheritance of the uh, world he lived in. But he changed it from action to intention, which makes a vast difference. And we can talk about that another time. But you have the intention for meditation, so you're making good karma. The more often you have that intention, the more often you make good karma, the easier it will be to meditate. We need a foundation for meditation. Because that marketplace reality of our consciousness exists in the same mind that's supposed to be concentrated and eventually transcend that ordinary consciousness. One and the same mind has no um, division, so we have to have a support system. One of our support systems is making good karma. You're doing that the minute you sit down. Another thing which happens immediately, without even half trying, is that we overcome the inherent attitude of the mind which likes to procrastinate. It's called our third hindrance. And in Buddhist terminology, it's called sloth and torpor, or laziness and drowsiness. And it is inherent in all human beings, in all beings that we are aware of. It's much nicer to do nothing, we think, particularly if we're doing something. Then when we do nothing, we think it's better to do something. We're never quite satisfied. But this tendency for sloth and torpor is effectively counteracted by sitting down and wanting to be alert, awake and aware to know what's going on in one's own mind. The Buddha compared sloth and torpor with being in prison. When the mind doesn't want to do anything and just says, oh, leave me alone. I just want to be, I just want to have peace. It's a matter of not wanting to exert oneself. 
to see and understand. And it's like being imprisoned because we can't do anything. So here we have an antidote, an opponent to that. Just by sitting down and wanting to become concentrated. Now, of course, the more concentrated we become, the more we counteract that floss and torpor. And since all human minds are beset with that hindrance, not only that one, several others which I might mention at other times, we can see already from that that our mind changes when we meditate because we have to be awake and aware and alert in order to even notice the distracting thought and give it a label. If we are not alert but become drowsy, we can't even give it a label. So we are already having several benefits of the meditation without even having become concentrated yet. Now naturally, this is a kind of practice which needs to be done continually, every day, just like we look after our bodies every day. We all eat three times a day, presumably. We all wash at least once a day. We all go to bed at night. We all have a bit of exercise and we all get medicine when we're sick. And we do another, a lot of other things for the body, which take up a lot of time and energy. This is not to mean that we should neglect our bodies. On the contrary, the less problem we have with our bodies, the easier it is to meditate. But we need to become aware one day of the fact that if we don't look after our minds in the same way that we're looking after our bodies, we'll be very sorry. The body alone does not constitute our life. On the contrary, mind is a master, body is a servant. We can think about that for a moment. Who told you to come here? The body or the mind? The mind told the body, get in a car and come, or get on a tram and come. So, body followed. Body can't make any decisions. Mind makes all the decisions. Now, obviously, it stands to reason that one should look after the one who is in charge, not neglecting the servant, obviously, but if we only look after the servant and forget completely about the boss, things go a bit haywire, usually. And you can take it for granted that that's the reason why the world looks as it does. Bodies are important. Minds are not. It's the other way around. And only those people who actually do enter into a spiritual discipline and meditate finally come 
to that point in their life where the mind is the most important aspect, the one that needs the attention. Of course, the body gets food and drink, goes to bed, but as a matter of course, We've been doing that for years on end. Not very difficult, is it? But how difficult to become concentrated in meditation. Our minds are requested to work from morning to night. We're thinking from morning to night. And then we dream from night to morning. And yet, this is the finest, most valuable tool in the whole of the universe. And we don't allow it a moment's rest. And then we wonder why we don't feel peaceful, harmonious, happy, at ease, confident. That which could give us that, those feelings, is totally overworked and very often under stress. We haven't allowed it to have a moment's rest. If we were to do that with an expensive tool, we would soon have to replace it. It would burn out. This one we can't replace. We've got it for the duration. It only stands to reason that we should look after. We need to look after it by giving it a rest, not thinking in meditation. It's the only rest it can have. And from it, it arises regenerated with strength and peacefulness. It also stands to reason that it needs as much of a clean-up as any good tool needs. So it needs purification. Again, through the concentration that happens, as I've mentioned. And also, it needs the right kind of input, the oiling for a good tool. Just as this body needs the right kind of food we would never give it anything that's poisonous or dirty. The same care for the mind. The right kind of input. Now this right kind of input will become more and more a habit if we label our thoughts and become aware of the fact that so many of them are not conducive to our own well-being. The teaching of the Buddha is often called a medicine. And the Buddha himself, the great physician. So this medicine is obviously medicine for the mind. All of it is available. But just as when we are sick in the body, and we go to the doctor and get a prescription, and then go and buy that at the chemist, take it home, put it on the mantelpiece, and go past it every day and look at the bottle and say, what a nice bottle that is. Very good medicine in there. But don't swallow it. 
It's not going to cure us, is it? This is the same. The Dhamma tells us in many different ways, guidelines, explanations, how to act and think so that complete mental health can be achieved. So complete that we have complete peacefulness. But we've got to swallow it. And some of it, like so many good medicines, may taste a bit bitter. It goes against our ego desires. It can't be helped. If we find it a bit too bitter, we'll have to wait till we can swallow that one too. Unless we practice meditation, we can't look after our mind. There's no way we can give it a rest, we can purify it, we can oil it, unless we do that. And this is the purpose and the means. The purpose of meditation and the means to gain insight into true reality, absolute reality, which is the insight which arises out of a clear, energetic and purified mind. So much for why, now how. Huh? We use a breath. The breath is a traditional meditation subject used in many traditions. It's particularly useful for meditation because we always have it with us and it's our foundation for life. Should it stop for any length of time, we'd be dead. So we're actually attending to being alive. Most of us would never have paid attention to the breath until a moment when we might have lost it. Asthma, drowning, choking, or something like that. Usually we take our breath for granted. And yet, taking it for granted means that we're taking our life for granted. Here we're using it, and we can actually help our concentration by having a loving feeling towards that breath because without it we wouldn't be here. If you think for a moment that this breath is the cause for your life, you may feel a bit loving towards it. When one has practiced for some time and I don't know if any of you have, probably have, one can watch the breath just at the nostrils as it goes in and out. But some time means years and concentration well established. If it's not years, if it's not concentration well established, one needs a support system. We need a crutch. And I'll give you a choice of four crutches to use with 
the breath so that you have a little more of a chance to get a bit of concentration and use that crutch for the whole of the first meditation period that we do here then if you want to change to another one later that's fine but don't change during one meditation session the first crutch is counting one on the in-breath one on the out-breath two on the in-breath two on the out-breath no more than ten back to one when a distracting thought has happened and you have labeled it back to one it's no use trying to think whether it's three or five or must have been nine already back to one doesn't matter how many times that's for those people who like numbers if you like numbers that's fine if you don't like numbers don't use it because it's boring tedious and you won't like it if you don't like your meditation you're bound not to do it so it's um not useful if you like numbers that's fine if you like words better than numbers use the word such as the word peace peace on the in-breath peace on the out-breath you can use two words love on the in-breath peace on the out-breath you can suit yourself you can if you have had buddhist training use the word buddho Bud on the in-breath, ho on the out-breath. Very useful. If you have some other words in mind which you like, use them. It doesn't matter. A word is a word. A method is a method. And please, you must also know that the method is not the meditation. At this point in time, we're trying to establish a method. Meditation starts when you can let the method go. So, numbers for those who like it, like numbers. Those who like words, love on the in-breath, peace on the out-breath, or any word that you like, buddho, anything. Don't use a whole sentence. Much too distracting. We're trying to become one-pointed. Ekagata is one of the factors of concentration. Many, many words do not, are not conducive to one-pointedness. But one or two words, yes, they're crutches. If you don't like numbers and don't like words, maybe you've got a mind that visualizes easily. Not if you have to strain to visualize something, but if you have visualization mind that easily sees pictures imagine that the breath is like an ocean wave with ebb and tide with the tide coming in and then with the ebb going out and as it comes in it gets a little smaller naturally and as it goes out it gets bigger again you can make it if you have that kind of a visualization mind a beautiful color silver or gold or something whatever you like 
But never forget the breath. They should be together. Hmm? These are crutches. And if you don't like any of those, but like or more inclined to it, sensation, which is physical, then watch the sensation that the breath creates at many places in the body. The first sensation is created at the nostrils. As the wind of the breath hits the nostrils, that's the first sensation. You can feel the wind of the breath hitting here. The next sensation you can feel is maybe up the nose, on the forehead, down the back of the head, in the throat, in the lungs, even further down into the stomach. Don't search for the sensation, just become aware of it as the breath goes in and as the breath goes out. How many of the sensations you notice doesn't matter. One sensation is very clear that when breathing in, the body expands. When breathing out, the body contracts. This is a very clear sensation. The other one which is clear is also the feeling at the nostrils. So you can choose between numbers, words, pictures or sensation. Unless you have meditated for years on end and become concentrated when you sit down and do it. Maybe if you are that capable you wouldn't be here. So maybe you've come because you want to do that. Using that crutch also means that you may become aware of the fact that you're now getting concentrated and you can let the crutch go. That's also a possibility. You don't have to hang on to that crutch. If the mind is staying with the breath, let it go. Labeling the thoughts. And then there's this. In this sitting position, there's easily discomfort. And without even noticing it, one moves. Take note. It's an extremely important learning situation. It's not meant to grit one's teeth and say to oneself, I'm going to show them I can sit. Nothing like that. And it's also not meant that meditation has to be physically painful. It's nonsense. It's also not meant to expand one's pain threshold. It's got none of those. None of that has any bearing on it. But there is a very important learning situation to be had from it. Namely, that we can actually notice what goes on in a human being. And this, what goes on here, with an unpleasant sensation is what goes on with us day after day after day, even at night when we're fast asleep. Because even at night when we're fast asleep, we're still moving. We are never waking up in the same position that we put ourselves to bed. Why? Because the body becomes uncomfortable and the mind reacts and makes it move. So here, what we are faced with is discomfort. And what happens, <coughs> or has happened, is that we have touch contact 
touch being one of the five senses in Buddhism we use six thinking also as a sense but first let's talk about the five so we have the touch contact now we make contact all the time we see, we hear, taste, touch and smell at this point in time we're seeing, hearing and touching we have three sense contacts plus thinking hopefully so we actually have four now here when we sit this touch contact becomes the strongest when it becomes unpleasant every sense contact produces feeling invariably enlightened or unenlightened makes no difference contact feelings next one gives there are three kinds of feelings pleasant unpleasant and neutral now the neutral one we're not so concerned with because at least it isn't unpleasant and also we don't notice it so much because we're not mindful enough to notice it so we are really concerned with pleasant and unpleasant so here we've got an unpleasant one next thing what happens is the perception the labeling it says pain and then comes our reaction I don't like it I've got to get away from it and we move but all happened so fast that we have missed the whole process except the unpleasant feeling and the reaction to it the rest we've missed we've missed the cause the touch contact we've missed the rising of the feeling the perceiving of what it is we haven't given ourselves time to actually know what's happening so here we've got plenty of time nobody wants anything from us so we can watch it this is the way it works touch contact feeling perception reaction and then we can recognize the fact that we always react like that we have been reacting like that from the day we were born screaming when we don't like it when we don't get what we want and screaming when we get what we don't want now we don't scream we just try to get out of it somehow or other so we move now when we watch this happening we have a complete idea of the pre-programmed activity of the human mind and as long as we don't stop that program we're always going to be in it so here we have a chance to stop it we can first recognize it after we've recognized it we can actually let our mind go away from that unpleasant feeling back to the meditation subject now everybody can do that for a moment or two there's nobody that cannot do that and we have learned from that that it's possible to disregard the unpleasant feeling and get on with what one is actually doing now in daily life that would be an extremely important thing to be able to do now then when the mind gets back goes back to the unpleasant feeling and says it's all very interesting but I can't sit like that then move gently slowly and admit to yourself that you were conquered by an unpleasant feeling we are being conquered by our unpleasant feelings constantly 
but we don't know it and we don't admit it. Here, at least we have a chance to say it to ourselves. This is what happened. That makes all the difference. The formula is recognition, no blame, change. First step, recognition. That's how we deal or can deal with the unpleasant sensations which arise. Now we have these three things. We have the meditation subject with four different crutches. We have the labeling of the distracting thought and we have the recognition on how our desire to move arises. Before we actually do it, are there any questions? Everybody know exactly what to do and what not to do. Approximately. <laughs> I think I'll have to say something else. Sound. There'll be sound which even if it's not that loud, you'll notice it when we sit in meditation, you'll notice other sounds. It's also very interesting and a great learning situation because the sound takes the mind away from the meditation subject. But from it you can also learn something, and that is that the ear actually can only hear sound. The mind is going to say, truck. Not a good situation here for meditation, too noisy. I have no time at home to do that. Every day, too much. It's all because there was a sound out there. And you can watch the mind actually latching on to a sound that came through the ear and making a story out of it. It's very interesting because from that again you will see that there's nothing else that has control over our lives except our own mind. The Buddha said that no father, no mother can do for one what a trained mind can do for one. No enemy can do for one what an untrained mind would do for one. So, again, even with sound, so then your next step, if you can't get back to the meditation subject because the sound continues, you can try, and this is very difficult actually, but you can try it anyway if the sound is very bothering, to see whether you can just watch the sound being reverberating waves which come into you and which you can feel as waves without the mind saying what it is. If you can do that, then it's okay to meditate. Then one can meditate. It's not easy. So don't, please don't be surprised if you can't do it. But sometimes the sound becomes so uh, overbearing that there's nothing else to be done except that. And then you can try that. It's just a sound wave, which one can feel as a wave. And know the mind has to stop saying, this is a kid crying, I wish they'd left it at home. What nonsense to take a kid here, that sort of thing. When the mind stops saying that and just has a sound wave, it's possible to meditate.